Well, if you can open your Bibles up to uh, Psalms 17, verse 15. Um, I got the, uh, the title for this message before I had the, the verse, which is sort of backwards of how it seems like it normally works. But I was praying, I believe it was Tuesday or Wednesday, I was praying on the way to work, and I just got a title. The title is Regaining a Vision of Glory. Regaining a Vision of Glory. Psalm 17, verse 15, it says, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that that this morning that we get the opportunity to um, behold your face, Father. Um, Just open our hearts and our eyes, Father, to to not let this be another time where we just read some verses, Father, and and fail to see you in them, Father, and fail to see how you intend to use those things to change us to look like you, Father, and, and and don't let your spirit pass us by, Father. I ask that your spirit would fall and continue to remain here in our service, Father, and that that we would all be changed just by beholding your face, Father, not by not by a sermon, God, not by a man, God, but by your grace, by a revelation of who you are, Father. I ask you to forgive me for my inadequacies, Father, and my inability to <clears throat> portray you like you should be portrayed, Father. And I ask you to use me now to, uh, to use words, God, in some, some way to communicate what you are and what you're worth, Father, that we could see that, be gripped and changed by that, Father, for the rest of our lives, Father. Um, just be with us, I pray. And, if everybody would just keep their eyes closed for just one minute, with your eyes closed and nobody looking around and nobody knows what you're thinking, I just I want to know, if you looked around your life right now, what do you see? Um, if you look the direction you want your business to go, what, what's in front of you? And what's around you? What, what did last week look like? What's your, what's your family look like? What's, what's your plan for your family? What's, what's in the future for your family? And in this church, when you, when you think of church, what, what, do you, what do you see? And Jesus, I ask that you would, you would fill our view up now in Jesus' name. Amen. It is not possible that any of us can see nothing. It is not possible for a human being, as long as they're alive, to quit looking. Human beings are hardwired to constantly be looking, looking for a new job, a new adventure, a new way to do things. We're always looking out ahead. We're always looking for the next step. It's not possible for us to stop until we die. There's always something else. There's always a place we want to go, a trip we want to take, a person we want to become, uh, a goal we want to achieve. There's always something in front of us. That thing that's in front of us is determined by what I would call a view from your heart. You know, the last time I spoke, we talked about a throne that sits in our heart. And the, and the view that we, we internalized just a minute ago, that we looked around our life and we took stock of what we intend to do with our life and who we be, tend to become, we took that view from the, the throne of our heart. We looked out from the throne of our heart to see the direction that, the, that our heart has cast for us. 
so is, is everything that we're doing right now, is it, is it for us as individuals? Are we looking out in front to see what can I gain for myself? How can I get ahead? How can I secure myself a place? How can I make more money? How can I be the fastest, be the strongest? Can I be the toughest, the best looking? Is that the direction of our heart? Because if that's the direction of our heart, then that means that our heart is primarily concerned with ourselves. That our heart is primarily concerned with making sure that I get what I want. Or maybe when you look out from the direction of their heart, all you see is evilness. Maybe from the direction of your heart, what you see is the next, the next movie, the song, the adventure, the thing you know you shouldn't do that you want to run and go do. Or maybe for, for those of us that have beat those, it's bitterness or anger our resentment, our stress, our worry, all those things that, that Jesus said we aren't supposed to have any part of. And yet when we look out from the throne room of our heart, it's what we feel. We feel anger. We feel criticism. We feel skepticism. We feel jaded. And that's because the direction of our heart is turned in such a way that that is what our heart has been taught. That's what our heart's been trained to desire. Or maybe is it possible that we have a heart of witchcraft? What do I mean by a heart of witchcraft? In the Old Testament, it says that rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Why is that? Because rebellion is not believing that the way that God said that a thing would happen is good enough. So rebellion is moving situations, is manipulating people and circumstances in order to achieve the end that we want. You know, what did Saul do when, when he knew God's presence wasn't with him? He went to Endor and he found a witch. And he said, you tell me, because God's not talking to me. That's rebellion. That's charting the own course of our life by our own intentions and by our own strength and by our own plan the best way that we can how. And there's no trust of Jesus in that heart. What do we see when we look out from the throne room of our heart? Where is our heart taking us? Because our heart, like Scott prayed this morning, that's what matters. We're constantly fixing external things, but the interior force, behind, driving force behind everything that we do, if it's, not, if it's not changed, then it will always be about those things. It will always be about yourself. It will always be the anger, the bitterness, the resentment. It will always be the manipulation and trying to make things work out when they're not working out. And refusing to just fall on your knees and ask God for answers, and instead we continue to manipulate circumstances and attempt to manipulate relationships to make what we want happen. And God calls that the sin of witchcraft. Because anything that relies on anything except for God to achieve an end is witchcraft. It's going beyond what God has ordained. It's going beyond what God's given to achieve a goal so that we can achieve it for ourselves under our own strength. And so I want to know, what, what are we looking at this morning? If we sit on the throne room of our heart, which way is our throne pointed? Where, where are we going? The barometer of what is going on in our heart is not what our heart tells us about ourself. Because our heart will tell us what it knows the right answers are. There's not a person in this room that doesn't know the right answers. The way to know what your heart is, is what does your heart want? That's the infallible proof of where your heart is. Because what your heart wants is who you are. What your heart strives for and goes after and prioritizes and puts first. That's what your heart is. It's possible to play Bible games and play Bible answers, but our heart never change. And then our heart is always in that direction. 
And if we don't recognize that it's our heart that's the problem, we'll continue to tinker with external things and never once enter into a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we're still playing with externals and we haven't gone to the heart of the matter. The fact is, is our throne is still turned this way when Christ is that way. And we try to make our circumstances make it over to Christ. But our heart has never turned to who Christ is and what Christ has done. And so because of that, we're constantly fighting ourselves. In this verse, I believe that David, David tells us what the chief end of his heart is. What the chief aim of his heart is. He says, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. For David, the tent of his heart was seeing God's face. What David prioritized above everything else was seeing God's face. If you do a word study on David and, and, and the word satisfaction or satisfied in the, old, in the Psalms, you'll find out that every time David talked about being satisfied, it was in relation to a nearness to the presence of God. He said, I'm satisfied in your courts. I'm satisfied in your presence. I'm satisfied when I'm before your face. I'm satisfied by your constant mercies. David had made his throne of his heart turn towards God by the grace of God in his life. But before we can stop and look at David's heart, I know the response of our hearts lots of times is, what does it matter? What does it matter what I like if I believe Jesus? What does it matter what I'm into or what my hobbies are or what, what, the, what the aim of my heart is as long as I believe Jesus? Well, I believe we've taken the word believe and held it hostage to our own definition, but, but the, the, the direction of your heart does matter. It has eternal consequences. Some of you guys are sitting in here this morning and you have unregenerate hearts. That's not a dirty word. It's not a put-down. It's just a fact. It's like saying I'm a Caucasian. That's not a put-down. It's not an insult. It's just a fact. To have an unregenerate heart means that your heart has never been changed. That you were born with a heart that you still have today. Your life direction, all your choices, everything that you're about is about one thing, and it's what you want, and it's about what you want to get. And in that, your heart is unregenerate. And what do I mean by unregenerate? I mean that the gospel is this. That God has to judge that heart. Why does God have to judge that heart? Because that unregenerate heart that's all about you will never once admit that Jesus is Lord of your life. You will never once submit to Jesus' claim that He owns you, that He created you, and as such, you owe Him responsibility. And so your heart is unregenerate. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you a new heart. I'll, put, I'll give you a new mind. I'll create a new creation. And we say No. And in that, our heart is unregenerate, and that means our heart stays the same. To regenerate means to create new. And in that unregenerate state, you need to know that, that what your heart likes, what you're into, is a matter of life and death, eternal life and eternal death. That it's not just a matter of what you get in this life, but it's a matter of who you are when you stand before Christ. You have the opportunity here this morning to receive a regenerate heart. You have an opportunity to lay your life down like these guys did last weekend in, in sight of the fact that Jesus died to set you free so that he wouldn't have to judge you. You have the opportunity to take advantage of that and receive a brand new, fully washed, clean heart with new desires, with a throne that's pointed in the right direction. You have that opportunity. Christ has come to give you that opportunity. There's no reason for you to leave here today unregenerate. There's no way for you, reason for you to leave how you came in here. It matters what your heart likes. It matters what you're into.
But for most of us, I know that in this room, most of us are regenerate. We did see the glory of God at one time, and we did bow our knee to Him, and we did receive new hearts, and suddenly we had new desires. We had that first taste of glory. We saw something in Christ that we thought was worth trust, was worth surrender, and so we, before that view that we saw of God, we laid our lives down, and we accepted His work on our behalf. At that moment of salvation, wasn't He all that we saw? Didn't nothing else matter right then at that moment when you realize that it was for me that Jesus died? You guys, that's not supposed to be a memory of years ago. That's supposed to be an ever-present reality, a growing reality. It's supposed to be a presence that comes into our life and invades and little by little doesn't become less but becomes more. Little by little doesn't slowly sneak out of you but rather becomes larger and larger in our view. There is no honeymoon phase in Christianity. Every day with Christ is better. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Christ intends to become better and better, to look more and more beautiful to us every day, not less and less. Let me ask you, where is Jesus in your business? When you look around your business, your career, if you don't own a business, where do you want to go with your life? Where is Jesus in that view? Was he ever there? Did you ever know that Jesus is interested in your career? What you intend to do with your life? What about your family? You guys, calling is a tricky thing to to nail down. What is calling? How do you know you have it? When do you have it? What is it? How do you perform it? All all those things, those, those can be hard to exactly pin down, but I'll tell you this. If you're a parent of a family, you are called to be a parent. If you have kids, you are called to raise those children. You can't escape that calling. If a pastor is a shepherd, then both moms and dads are pastors of their children. If we were to strip away everything from the life of your children, except the actions that they saw you taking, the priorities that they saw you setting, what would they know of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What would they know of the worth of Jesus Christ just based on your actions? Not based on your words, because we can say whatever we want, but people watch our lives. They're not as interested in our words as they are in our lives. Because they want to see a life that's changed. Because they want to know that there's hope. They want to know that addiction isn't forever, that there's a power that can set them free from addiction. They want to know that there's life outside of sin. They want to know that they can be free in Christ. And they're looking at our lives. And if our lives aren't showing that, then don't be surprised when our kids are 16 and disillusioned with who Jesus seems to be because we've done a poor job making Him beautiful to our children. We've done a poor job approving the things that we should approve. What we approve is what we ultimately tell our children that we want to see. And I don't mean approve with eyes. I mean approve, approve with words. I mean approve with investment. Where are you investing in your kid's life? That is your approval. And your approval tells your children what the most important thing is. Your, appro- your investment in your child's life is what you are setting as precedent as this is the most important thing to me. So where, what is that? What is that in your family's life? Do your kids know that the most important thing as far as your relationship with them is concerned is that you want to see them see Jesus? 
that you will lay down your life in order to make sure that even if your career suffers, even if your family suffers, that you're going to make sure that they know Jesus is real and that Jesus saves and that Jesus is able to set us free. Are we living those kind of lives as parents? We talk about mission fields and evangelism, but it starts right in our house. It starts right in our own hearts. And if you're here and you're a kid, you can't excuse yourself. Are you a family member? Do you belong to a family? Are you his child? Then in that relationship, you have responsibility. You have a responsibility to portray Christ to your brothers and sisters. You have a responsibility to portray the beauty that you've seen that caused you to lay your life down for Jesus Christ. You have a responsibility to show that beauty to other people around you. The people that you're closest to should know the best what your priorities are. So where is Jesus in our business and in our family? And when you think about this church, what's the first thing that pops into our mind about this church? Have we forgotten that a church is the point in the relationship where the, heaven, where the earthly manifestation of the body of Jesus Christ meets with the heavenly manifestation of Jesus Christ? Have we reduced church to a social network? To a community of friends and family members that are, is too appealing to walk away from but serves no other purpose? Have we forgotten that Christ intends to worship His Father from the congregation? Have we forgot that where two or three are gathered in His name, He's there in the midst of them and He intends to be worshipped. He intends to be honored. He intends to be experienced. He intends to see Himself flowing through all of us in the gifts. He intends for us to be growing more and more in love with Him and, and as a result in love with His body, the church. When we start to go blind in areas, when we see no future, we see nothing, and so we just look away, we look to something else, we have reason to be troubled. Because the reason we go blind is when we, when we take our eyes off where the light is shining. It says that the light came into the world, and the world did not receive it. The light of Jesus Christ is shining. We take our eyes off that, and we look to the darkness. And suddenly darkness fills our gaze, and suddenly we lose the ability to see. It matters what our heart likes. It matters the inclination of our heart. We need to realize that in those three areas we just named, which were just, to me, the three main areas of our life, we, can't, we all have it. We all have a career. We all have a business. We all have a thing we do for work. We all have family. We all come to this church. In those three areas of our life, any area that is blind should cause us fear. Turn over to Deuteronomy 28. Biblically, there is never... a good reason for any of us to be blind. Well, there's good reason, but it's never a good sign. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 28 and 29, it says, The Lord will smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope as noonday as the blind gropes in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. Thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled forevermore, and no man shall save thee. What's God saying in this verse? We all know Deuteronomy 28, the blessing and the cursing, but what's, what's He saying? The blessing came on those who honored God with their life, who made everything about their life about Jesus. That's the blessing of Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 29 starts, when, when you forsake what I've told you to do, when you forsake what I've told you to be, then what happens? Well, right here it says blindness comes in. 
All of a sudden, we're unable to see a future. All of a sudden, we're unable to see behind or before. Unable, we're, una- we're unable to mark our surroundings and know what we're supposed to do. Suddenly, confusion. It says like a, like a blind man who gropes at noonday because the sun doesn't help him. He can't see the sun. It does him no good. And in the same way, when we turn our eyes off Jesus Christ in any area of our life, we become blind to that area. And suddenly, we lose our ability to navigate. Suddenly, we don't know where to go. It says madness, confusion. The inability to think logically and blindness, the inability to, to mark your, land, your landscape, the inability to look around and see that you're going in a bad way, the inability to know that you've left the way of life and that you've moved into darkness, blindness, the inability to see landmarks, to know where you're going, to have direction, to have a future and a hope, and despair. When suddenly we begin to live with frustrations, And we begin to live with things that aren't like they're supposed to be. We begin to live with it and say, it's just always going to be this way. That's a curse. That is a curse because we've left the presence of God and we've entered into a curse where we can no longer see what's before us. We have no problem seeing when we first come to Jesus because He's everything. But as He becomes less and less of everything, suddenly it becomes confusing. Suddenly it becomes hard to figure out. Because we've taken our eyes off Jesus. So we should be concerned if we are blind in any of those areas. If Jesus Christ has left or never was in one of those areas of our hearts. Because it is a sign of God's curse. Of God's disfavor. Of God's disapproval in that area of your life. The second reason why it should matter to you if you're blind in any of those areas. Is because Jesus told Nicodemus this. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The work of salvation in our lives is to open blind eyes, to bring life into dead bones, to give us a hope and a future, to let us have a permanent relationship with the God who loves us. That is salvation. It restores our senses. Suddenly we can feel and we can taste and we can see what we could never see before. The kingdom of God was always in front of us, but we could never see it until God opened our eyes. Jesus was always beautiful, but we couldn't see it until Jesus Christ opened our eyes. The best way to live was always Jesus' way, but we didn't know it until He opened our eyes. So to have our eyes open and to see the love of God and then to go into darkness is a reversal of your salvation. It's going in the opposite direction of where God intends you to go. Those areas of your life that you refuse to give Jesus control over that make you blind, that make you do things that are wrong and you may not even see it. One commentator said that the constant state of lukewarmness is that they are never aware of it. To go back to blindness is to go back to death. It's to go back to where God brought you out of. We can't afford that. And the third reason why blindness should bother us is because when the Son of God walked this earth, His number one issue was with the blind. And I don't mind blind physically. I mean, those people that God had chosen and allowed in such a way that they could have a relationship with God because unto them were committed the oracles of God. Because they they did have the possibility to have a redeeming relationship with their Savior, but they chose something else. And what did they choose? They chose religion. They chose religion over God. And so when God Himself appeared... 
When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect manifestation of who God is, appeared to them, they didn't want anything to do with Him. How is that possible? How is it possible that a religion that God started, a, a truth that God gave, a Bible that God gives so that people could have life, and many people did have life, people like David and Abraham and Moses that saw the Word of God, and they saw it for what it was, and they believed it. And had, Jesus, had they been alive when Jesus walked, they would have accepted Him. And yet here comes those who are the religious elite, those who know the Bible better than everyone. And when Jesus comes, they don't accept him. They don't believe what he says. How is that possible? Is it possible because tradition trumps relationship? Is it possible because the way that we do things is more important than who is teaching us to do them? Is it possible that we become more reliant on our ability to discern scripture and to know right from wrong than what we rely on Jesus' relationship with us to teach us? Is it possible that we settle in an experience that we had years and years ago, a light that is fading from our memory, and we rely on that to justify ourselves now instead of going to God's Word and say, though you slay me, I will trust you. Show me your truth. Lead and guide me into your truth. What is your heart, Father? The thing we need to understand about truth is that it does not change. But the other thing that we understand about truth is that truth will always change us. You are not done changing until you reach heaven. No one has a perfect revelation of what God intends for you to do or what God wants for you to do. So day by day we grow. And when we come to a place where no, we're no longer interested or willing to change, we are becoming blind. When we come to a place that what we have is good enough and better than everybody else, then we are becoming blind in that area of our life. We are becoming the Pharisees that are so easy to read about and point a finger at. Turn to John 5. John 5, verse 39. And then this, Jesus says something that should startle us because this is what we stand on. It says, search the scriptures. John 5, 39. Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. They are them which speak of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. What is Jesus telling these people? He's saying, go home and read your Bible. Go home and do it the way you want to do it. You go to this because you think you have life and you ignore a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is the whole reason that this book was written. Over and over again, Jesus told him the same thing. If you believe this, you would believe me. If you saw what this was saying, you would see me. But because you neither believe nor see, you are blind. And over and over again, he called the Pharisees blind. Over and over again, you said, you blind, you leader of the blind, you blind guides. These were the people to whom the Bible was entrusted. These were the people who dedicated their lives to, to parsing and making just right and telling everyone else how it was done. These were the people who knew better than everybody else. And yet when the Son of God stood before him, they rejected him straight away. Never gave him a second moment's thought because he wasn't what they wanted. Because he wasn't what they had aligned themselves. They created a religion. And the word religion has come under fire today, and I don't want to give up the word religion because the word religion is a good thing. But the difference is man's religion and God's religion. There is a religion that God instituted at the beginning of the world where it says, in the beginning, God. And God started working then and has worked all through creation. That's God's religion, where God comes to man. But every other form of religion is when we take Jesus Christ out of the equation and we put ourselves there and we start to call the shots. This is how we do things. This is what we do. And we don't ever stop and consider then maybe our hearts are taken back to the steering wheel. So we don't want to be blind because being blind is a sign of God's disapproval of our life. We don't want to be blind because for all those that are saved, He opened our eyes and He intends our eyes to stay open. 
to always see Him as glorious. We don't want to be blind because it was the blind that Jesus came. And even though He said, I do not come into the world to condemn the world, He constantly condemned the blind. Not the physically blind, He healed them. Not those who knew they were blind, but He said, instead, you are blind because you believe you see. Those who came to Jesus with the admission that I'm blind, that I can't figure out what this word means. I've got no idea what this word means. Teach me. Teach me thy ways, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. That isn't going to the Bible and finding a proof text to back up what you've always done. That's going to the Bible to say, teach me, O Lord. And in all my ways I'll acknowledge you and lean not to my own understanding. Even if your understanding was good 20 years ago, or even if your understanding was good yesterday or last week at youth camp, wherever your understanding was of what you saw of God, we still don't lean to it. We still don't put our trust in a thing that God gave us to point Him to Himself, to give us life. Because only Jesus rose again. Only Jesus gives eternal life. Only Jesus is here to heal this morning. Only Jesus is here to save. And we need to study this Word like our life depends on it because it does. But we are in danger of making good things into idols. We are in danger of making personalities into idols. We're in danger of making this word an idol. We're in danger of glorifying things that cannot give us life over the thing that can give us life. There is no replacement for a spirit-led life. There is no level of doctrine we can reach wherein we do not need to rely on the spirit day by day. How is it that Jesus Christ, when he was in the wilderness and the devil came to him and said, you feed yourself on those stones, turn those stones into bread. And what did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone. And yet it's not but weeks later, he's up in Cana and they bring him water and he turns it to wine. If Jesus was making himself a religion, he would have said at that point, I was not going to turn stones into bread, so I will not turn water into wine because that's consistent. Am I right? But he was led by the spirit. But he valued his relationship with the Father above the status quo and above making sure that he could get comfortable and making sure that he had all the answers and being satisfied in that. He communed with his Father daily to be led by the Spirit. This is the Spirit-led Jesus here and the Spirit-led Jesus there. That's a choice that Jesus made to be led by the Spirit. You guys, our experience of Jesus should be better and better. Our understanding of what God looks like should be more and more beautiful. We have reason to fear if the most beautiful thing that we know about God is something that happened years ago. Because Jesus intends to commune with us this morning. He intends to show himself this morning. And every glimpse that we get of God is better than the one that we had before. No human mind can comprehend the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so he shows us bit by bit, piece by piece, layer by layer, he reveals himself to us. If he's not getting better and better, it's because we are becoming blind. It's because we, are stopped, we have ceased to see reality for what it is and we have substituted the reality that Jesus Christ is glorious and that God loves to save and the Holy Spirit is here to encourage us and equip us and empower us to change the world on behalf of Jesus Christ. We've changed all of that and we've accepted a lie. And in that we are becoming blind. The Spirit intends to lead His church. The Spirit intends to power, empower believers. The Spirit intends to reveal to our hearts the beauty of Christ. If you all can turn back to Psalm 17, we'll go back to David now. I want to spend the rest of the morning looking at David because David was a man just like us. David had his struggles. His view of God would dim and grow brighter. But yet there was a, there was a consistency in David's life. And that was the tent of his heart. 
Psalm 17, verse 15. And David, David made sure that his heart was about one thing when he said, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. That phrase, as for me, if you read that chapter, when he says, as for me, he's comparing himself to everyone else. And by everyone else, I mean those who haven't caught a glimpse of God. He compares himself in the two previous verses to people who are all about gaining for themselves and all about securing for themselves and all about reaching comfort in this life. All people who are consumed in just one thing, and that is just making their place in the world and guarding it. And he, and he compares himself for, to them by saying, as for me, that's what they're doing. They're about power. They're about prestige. They're about success and money and affluence and influence. They're about all those things. But as for me, I've reduced my life down to one thing. And I think when we read that and we look at our lives and I look at my life and I realize that I'm not there yet. My life isn't, isn't about one thing yet. I want to know, how did you do that, David? How did David get to the place where literally, this isn't preacher talk, literally David had built his life around this thing where the most exciting thing he ever saw was the face of Jesus. The most exciting thing he could do was spend a day in his father's courts. The most exciting thing he could do was be in God's presence. How does a man get there? How does a man experience change to the degree that, that he, can, he can forget about about success and he can forget about arriving and he can forget about his and, and his own and, and making his place in the world. How does a man do that? How did David do it? If you just look right across the page to verse 18, chapter 18, verse 6. Listen to what David saw. He said, In my distress I called upon the Lord and I cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple. My cry came before him and into his ears. And now this is what David sees in response to his prayer. He says, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills were moved and were shaken because he was angry. There went up smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth, devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens and he came down and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon the cherub and he did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made his darkness his secret place. He made pavilion around him where dark waters and thick clouds of the sky. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yes, he sent out his arrows, he scattered them, he shot out lightnings and discomfited them. Then the channels of water were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke. O Lord, the blast of thy breath and of thy nostrils. He sent from above and he took me, drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also and he into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. You guys, Christianity is not, is not predicated on an idea that you should. Christianity is predicated on the idea that you want to. That you want this God of the universe who bows the heaven when he comes, who breathes out his nostrils and the earth shakes, who clothes himself and cannot be hidden, and yet when he hides himself, he cannot be seen. The God who can deliver you from all your enemies that are too strong for you. The God who is mighty in your day of calamity when all others cut you off from God. It is a sight of this God that makes you want to give him your life. It's not a decision you make. It's not that you should. It's not that my parents want me to. It's not that it's the right thing to do. It's not that it'll make my life better. You come to Jesus because you see Him as beautiful. 
Surely all of us that have called on the name of Jesus at some point, Psalm is beautiful. Surely there was some day when we looked at Jesus' face and you said, you died for me, Savior. I can do no less than give you all my life. Surely we weren't always half asleep. God wants us to come back to that. Because that God that moved when David prayed is still moving. That God that bows the heavens to make way for his entrance onto the, the, the earth where we struggle and where we fight and where things don't make sense. That God that responds to us when we need him, he's still alive. And he's still present wherever two or three are gathered in his name. He's still in the midst of them. And he's still mighty to save. And his hand is still not shortened. And there's still no earthly foe. There's no army. There's no calamity. There's no sickness. There's nothing that can stop his hand. We have to see God. See him for who he is, not for who we want him to be. See him for what he did, not for what we imagine he did. See, when David saw that, it wasn't hard for him to make his whole life about seeing more of that. He wasn't back up at the altar every week recommitting. We know David fell. We know he lost sight of it. But there was a present undercurrent permanently in his life where he would never leave that. He left it from time to time and he made mistakes. But he would always come right back. What did he pray? Cast me not away from your presence. The first problem that David had was not that I messed up. It said, don't take your presence from me. Whatever you do, don't take your presence from me. And that's the difference between religion and relationship. Because in religion, God's presence can leave the building. And we don't care. Because we've got it set up in such a way that we can take care of all of this. But in relationship, as soon as God's presence leaves, we are on our knees. We need Him back. You know when Jonah ran away from Nineveh? It doesn't say he ran away from Nineveh. It says he ran away from the presence of God. His disobedience was not about the people of Nineveh. It was about his relationship with God. And God saw that he needed to restore Jonah. So God organized Jonah's life in such a way that he would bring him back to his presence. Bring him back to the presence of God. We've got to get back into God's presence. This isn't about dotting all your T's and crossing all your T's and dotting all your I's. This is about a relationship with the God of heaven who will move on your behalf and make everything right. Not based on your merit, not based on your effort, not based on praying the exact right way, not based on ticking some boxes and, and ABC. No, based on your sight of him. Based on the fact that you realize that there's no one like him. Based on the fact that you realize that you are hopeless without Him. That there's not a day that goes by that you can live without His grace in your life. I, saw, I heard a preacher say this. You know that you're becoming holy when you see a leaf on the ground and you fall down and worship the God who made that leaf. What does he mean? When we begin to see God in every circumstance of our life, we begin to understand holiness. Holiness is a life that lives with God's presence ever present in it. Holiness is not the pharisaical code of morals. And there's nothing wrong with morals. But God's presence is what we're after. You can be good moral people without the presence of God. There are good, good people without God's presence in their life. What we're about, what we want is God's presence. So I think the next fair question that we could ask is, David, how did you see that? I haven't seen that. How, how did you see that? I mean, I, I know that in theory God can do those things, but David, how did you see that? How did you pray and know that, that the earth just trembled because God had stood up from his throne? How did you pray 
and know that those who were too strong for you, those that were having their way with you, those that were pushing you around and doing what they wanted to you, how did you know that God was not going to let that happen? That God was going to move on your behalf? If you can turn over to Psalms 27. Psalms 27. Verse 8. It says, When thou said, Seek my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. It is that simple. Are you here this morning and feel any, any amount of God's presence? Are you here this morning and in your heart you hear a call? In your heart you hear an invitation that this God, this God intends to talk to you, intends to commune with you. What is that? That's the voice of God saying, Seek my face. Seek my face. You guys, if we make our life about anything but the face of Jesus Christ, we will reach our goal and we will die before we are dead. What do I mean by that? I mean, make, make your life about right, right doctrine. And in four to six years, you can, you can have that button down and you can put that away on a shelf and you can say, I have right doctrine. Make your life about being right. You can find yourself in a situation in just a mere few months' time you convince yourself you're right. Your search is over. All of those things are meant to bring us into relationship with God. It's not meant to give us a reason to stop pursuing relationship. Relationship with God isn't about, okay, God's holy, so I'm going to study holiness. And now that I've studied holiness, I'll put that away. And I guess there's nothing else for me to study that's not a relationship with God. There is no life in those things. You can, you can have all the right doctrine. And I pray to God that my doctrine's right. I care about my doctrine. I care about making sure that my doctrine aligns with what I believe the truth is revealed in the Word. I care and I fight for that, but I know that that will not give me life. Only Jesus gives me life. Only Jesus answers my prayer. Try to pray to right doctrine when you need help. Try to pray to being right and better than everybody else when you need help. None of those things can save you because all of those things are your own merit. We've got to see God as bigger than our own merit. We've got to see God as the everlasting prize that our soul yearns for. See, our hearts are made to never be satisfied. We'll spend eternity and our hearts will still want to see more of Jesus and know more of Jesus. And how did you do that, Jesus? We'll always want more of Jesus so our hearts are never satisfied. So when, we, when our flesh, which is easily amused, and when our flesh, which is easily satisfied with a bag of potato chips, a couch, and a good movie, which is all our flesh ever wants to amount to, when our flesh is what we listen to, when we lower ourselves to the basis of our flesh, our heart dies. Our relationship with God disappears. Because our hearts weren't intended to find their rest this side of eternity. Our hearts weren't intended to quit seeking this side of eternity. We aren't expected to know everything that there is to know about our Redeemer this side of eternity. We're supposed to always be striving. What did Paul say? I don't fight though I'm shadow boxing. I fight to win. I fight to get after this. That's not a man who saw truth 20 years ago. That's not a man who, who got saved 10 years ago. That's not a man who did something and now is satisfied. He's a man that's pursuing and pursuing and only God. But let me tell you this, young believers, guys that just got saved last week, it is a sure thing that the enlargement of your heart, the living your life in such a way that you will see more and more of Jesus, it is guaranteed to kill your flesh. You are guaranteed to die. And that is why 
we stop our search. Let's be honest. The reason we stop our search isn't because we saw Jesus and realized that in him was some lack. It isn't because we ran after Jesus with all of our heart and we got there and we thought, this isn't what I was looking for. I'll go look for something else. The only reason we stopped searching for Jesus is because it hurt too much. Because it wasn't what we said we wanted. And in that, we only revealed that he was never on the throne of our hearts. Jesus intends to be known. He intends to fill your view. He intends to make everything in your life about him. And in that, you'll experience peace and joy like you've never done. Don't mistake me. But God delights in calling his Jonas to Nineveh. God delights in calling his Peters to stand up for him. God delights in calling the rich of the earth to the poor and the poor to meekness. God delights in bringing those who are thought highly of men and thought highly of themselves into low places. Why? Because he hates you? No. Because he loves you. Everything that is good, everything that is beautiful in this universe is a beauty and a goodness that is only derived from Jesus Christ. In him and through him and to him are all things. And man excels in perverting those things and missing those things, but the truth remains. Any side of beauty, any goodness that we see anywhere is only because there's a God. It's only because there's a Savior and His name is Jesus. And all of those things that you believe your heart searches for, God knows that it's not what your heart searches for. So when God comes to you this morning, He says, Seek my face. Seek my face. Are we saying, Your face, O God, will I seek? Next thing David says is he says, as for me, the next thing he says is I will behold thy faith. As for me, when everyone else lives this way, I will choose to live a different way. Why do I do that? Because I'm better than everyone else? Or because I'm on some higher moral plane? Why? Why did David make this bold statement that he would see the face of an invisible God? How could David say, as for me, I will behold your face? How did he know that? Because all those who come to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him because David understood that we walk by faith and not by sight because David understood that Abraham's righteousness was not in his works but in his belief that God was and that God was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So David knew that he would see God's face when he sought for it because God was the one who told him to seek for it. And he didn't set out to see if he would discover God's face. He set out in the knowledge that God's face was, would become visible to him. That the invisible God would become manifest to him. He did it in the faith and the knowledge that it is the God he serves and the God he serves intends to manifest himself, intends to make himself known. If you can turn over to John 1, before we talk about how to seek for God's face, we need to talk about what we're seeking. <clears throat> John chapter 1, and this is John the Apostle recounting his experience with Jesus. And in verse 14, he says this, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. Turn over to Hebrews 1. What we want to see so desperately, and what our lives can spend the rest of our lives 
inclined towards and pursuing with all of our heart is the face of Jesus Christ. It's intimate knowledge and relationship with the person Jesus Christ. Not the idea. Not the theology. Not the doctrine. But the very person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1. It says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these times spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed as heir of all things, by whom also he made these worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is the writer of Hebrews relating to us is this, that the God who loves to save has organized all of human history to make sure that his word was going out. He used diverse different ways. He used written word. He used spoken word. He used signs and wonders. But in all times, there was never a period when God wasn't interested in saving His people. When God wasn't working to make sure that those who were His could call upon His name and expect God to respond. God was always speaking. But then something happened. All of those things were incomplete representations of who God was. All of those people, all the Davids, all the Jeremiahs, all the Isaiahs, they weren't quite who God was. They were manifestations of one facet of God's character, but they were flawed in every other way. But then God sent His Holy Son, the sinless, perfect Lamb of God, came to this earth. And at this time, He has revealed Himself for one final time in the perfect person of Jesus Christ. Never again will God clarify who He is. Never again will God explain further who He is. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was exactly who God was. So when we say, Thy face, O God, will I seek, we are saying, Jesus, I want an intimate relationship with You. We're not setting out to accumulate facts. We're setting out to engage in communion with the Maker of the universe, the God who holds the stars and the sky and holds the earth together with a spoken word, who's a person, who is a man like us and is right now in this room and intends to see your heart and intends to make things right. Our relationship is not in the figment of our imagination or on some good ideas of moral perfectness. Our idea of Jesus Christ is the man, Jesus Christ, who when we pray, stands beside us. And when our prayer reaches heaven, he stands beside the Father. Our faith is not in an idea, it's in a person. And that person said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That person said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. That person died on your behalf to make it so you could stand before the Father. We don't do all this to gather facts. We don't get all this to perfect some ideas. We don't do all this to live a morally superior life. We do all this because we want to see Jesus. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you hear me shouting and carrying on and you still can't see. And you appreciate the enthusiasm or maybe you don't appreciate it but you still don't get it. What's the big deal? That's just some church talk. It's just some ideas. But maybe in that heart of yours, there's just the smallest leaning towards His grace. Maybe if you would admit it, there's the smallest thing within you that says, I don't know who Jesus is, but I hope I meet Him. I don't know what kind of God does that, but I hope He does that for me. I want to plead with you. Don't leave here and let that voice go quiet again. If you heard him this morning, seek his face. And you say, I don't even know if he exists. 
That doesn't bother God. He's been saving people who didn't imagine he existed for years and years now. It's never stopped him before. Turn over to John 14. The thing that we have to admit and just own is the fact that this, in our human nature, we're just blind by nature. We don't have any clue what's going on by nature. By nature, we are ignorant and deceived. By nature, we are fallen and sinful. What is supernatural is when we begin to want Jesus. That's supernatural. When we begin to think, oh, I don't know what that is, but I hope he can help me out. That's supernatural. That's the supernatural work of God. And so if you sit here at any point in your life, if you were just staring at pornography last night, if you were just out with a boy or a girl doing what you know you shouldn't do, if you were just somewhere sinning it up last night, God's voice has come to you this morning. And every day His mercy are new. And every day He'll call you back to Him. Every day He wants a relationship with you. If your enemies can't stop Him, you can't stop His love. If you're here this morning, you just have the smallest, smallest little bit of, I don't know what that guy's screaming about, but I wish I understood. I wish I could see that kingdom of God. I want to just invite you to come. You don't have to understand it. It doesn't have to make perfect sense. In John 14, <clears throat> verse 21, his disciples have been with him all this time, and they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it that he was what they were looking for. And at the end of Jesus' response, he tells them this, He that has my commandments keeps them, and he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Is there anything in you that wants to see God like David saw God? Is there anything that wants to know that your heart can be new, that those old desires can be changed, that you don't have to be who you've always been? Is there anything in your heart? Then just come to Jesus. Don't wait till you get it right. You'll never get it right. Don't wait till you've got the strength. You'll never have the strength. That's the whole message of the gospel. So what does Jesus tell his disciples who still didn't get it after years of walking with him? And they said, now, okay, this has all been great, Jesus. We've been enjoying the show and stuff, but, but show us God. We want to see God. And he said, don't you get it? I am the manifestation of God. Don't you get it this morning that's stirring in your heart? That is the manifestation of God. That is the God that David prayed to. That is the one that intends to save your soul. That is the one who died it's the, it's right now. And that's what he told his disciples. The God that you long for, the one that you want to see move in your heart and in your family and in this building and in our relationships and around the globe, that God is the one that's right here. And he just says, just come. Just come. And all those that come, I will manifest myself to them. You know, Jesus told a parable about a prodigal son who, who covered himself in the filth and covered himself in abomination, and covered himself in everything he knew he wasn't supposed to do. And yet at some point, there was a little something in his heart that said, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than what I've got, because if this is all that there is, there isn't any point in going on. If this is all that there is, I might as well just die now, because it's just getting worse every day. If this is all there is, it's not that exciting out there. But he realized that all he had to do was come. And so he stood up and he started walking. And he came back to that father that he had betrayed, that he had stabbed in the back and probably talked badly about, the one that he thought he had taken advantage of, the one whose mercies and grace that boy had lived on every day, all of his life, and never once been thankful for. That boy who cheated and stole 
and lived exactly in a way that he knew would hurt his father the most. That boy, as he climbed the last hill looking over, he realized for the first time in his life that it was never him that went after Jesus. It was always Jesus that came running up to him. And as he crossed that hill and there was doubt in his mind whether or not Jesus would take him this time, Jesus was already there. Because all we have to do is come. That's it. We lay down the stuff that's killing us, and we just turn and just say, I, I admit it's killing me. I admit that pride, and I admit all those things that are making me blind. I admit it's killing me. I admit that, that I'm the problem, but I really want your life, Jesus. I don't want to be like this forever. I don't want to be angry and jealous and cynical. I don't want to be upset. I don't want to be feeling like I've been cheated my whole life. I don't want to live with this. I don't want this guilt and this shame. I don't want to live purposeless with no, no excitement. I don't want to live without joy anymore. I'm going home to my father. And when you do that, you find out that he is running after you the whole time. That right now in this room, before you've even decided to chase him, he's already working. Whispering to you, telling you there's something better. You guys, there's people that live their whole life that never know there's anything better than what they have. They can live in the most degradative of existences and never know that there's better life. The fact that you, you sense in your life and in your heart that there's something better than what I've got is the grace of God. The fact that you have the smallest stirring that I want something else is the grace of God. You could live your whole life and never realize that you're going to hell and you could get to hell and God would be just in sending you there because you never once admitted that he was Lord. He ne you never once admitted that it was his breath in your lungs. He would be just and your condemnation. But because he loves you and because God wants to save above all things, he stirs in your heart and he says, there's something not right. Seek my face. And I'm asking who here will seek his face? Turn back to Psalms 24 this time. David says, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. If you can turn to Psalms 24. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. That's a bold claim in righteousness. Because we find out when we want to go to the Lord, the scripture talks about the hill of the Lord. And in Psalms 24, it says, Who will ascend the hill of the Lord, or who will stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted his soul unto vanity, or sworn deceitfully. And we read that and we stop immediately and we say to ourselves, I will never make it up that hill. I see now the glory of God, but I will never attain it because I can't climb the hill. Because I see at the top of the hill the presence of God, where God lives, and I want it. But it says right here, he who has clean hands, my hands are dirty. No amount of scrubbing will clean these hands. It says those who have not lifted up their soul unto idols, idols are anything that we prioritize over God, anything that we place above God. None of us can ascend that hill. None of us can go up there and get in God's presence. We've all made our lives. We've worshipped idols. We've worshipped success. We've worshipped musicians and rock stars and artists. We've worshipped we've worshipped acclaim and fame. We've worshipped ourselves, but we've never once worshipped God. And now he says, you want to come up to my presence? Who has clean hands? And who's never lifted their soul up to an idol? Who has never sworn deceitfully? From the day we were born, we've been lying. We lie to our parents to get what we want. 
We lie to the people that know us so they don't know who we are. We lie to everybody all the time. We don't know anything else. And we stand at the bottom of this hill and we see up at the top and we don't know what's up there, but we want it. And so we go to start to become like Jesus. And what do we find? We find hands incapable of good works, a heart bent the wrong direction, and a mouth that's spewing profanities and lies. Everywhere we turn, it's just selfishness and, and rot and degradation and sickness. And there's no soundness in any of us. And you all know this. You know you've heard before that thou shalt not steal, and yet you stole anyway. You know that you've heard, don't use those words, and you use them anyway. You know that it says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, and you took it anyway. You know, he said, present your body a living sacrifice, and you refuse. You know all of these things. And so with all of humanity, we all stand at the bottom of this hill, and we look up. How are we going to get up there? And then suddenly one of us starts to walk up the hill. And we doubt him. There's a man that's going to ascend the hill of the Lord. There's a man who says, I have clean hands and a pure heart and I've never once loved anybody but, but God. And he starts to climb that. And instead of being grateful that there is a man like us, we hate him. Who does that man think he is? I bet he's hiding something. That guy thinks he's the boss. He thinks he can tell everybody what to do. Does that guy think he's perfect? And so as that man climbs, we as humanity throw everything that we can throw at him to try to make him stop. We impugn his character. We tell lies about who he is. We excuse ourselves from being part of the reason why that man as he climbs the hill is persecuted. We throw everything at him. We want to stop his ascent because his ascent is our judgment. Because a man like us has gone up to see God. And now all of us will stand before God and he will say, this man did it, why can you not do it? And so we want to stop him. We don't want that man to stand in condemnation of a whole human race. So we try to stop him. And when everything that we try, including killing him, does not work, we stand back to see what happens. And he gets to the top of the hill and he knocks on the gate. And he doesn't do it timidly. He bangs on the front door. And go down to verse 7. This is what he said. He says, lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, you everlasting doors. The King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord is strong and mighty. The Lord is mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Even lift them up, you everlasting doors. And the kings of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And silently, speechless, we watch as the gates of heaven, which have never opened for any man, open for this man. And that man walks directly before the throne of Almighty God, the God that we read about who bows the heavens, who, who with the breath of his nostril can consume the entire known world, whose wrath knows no bounds, whose perfect justice and judgment never forgets a sin. He walks before that judge. And he pulls out a name. And he reads it. And it's your name. And down at the bottom of the hill, we have no idea What's going on up in that holy city? And all of a sudden, that man appears. And he comes back down that mountain. And he comes down to that crowd that hates him so much, that hates everything he stands for, that doesn't want anything to do with him. He comes back in that crowd, and he scans his faces until he finds yours. And he comes to you and he says, I paid it! You can go up now! My hands that have never been dirty will be your hands. My heart that's never sworn to an idol, that's never held to vanities, will be your heart. 
My mouth, which has always been pure and always sang the Father's praises and never once taken the Lord's name in vain and never misspoke and never told a lie and never misrepresented itself, it will be your mouth. It will be your heart. It will be your mind. You can come up now. You can come up into the city of God. And He takes our hand and He leads us up. And though we doubt that it will work this time, Though we doubt that the Almighty God will see us this time, when we stand before His throne, He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord. Well done. I've never done anything right in all my life. I've never once served you, Jesus. What are you talking about? Well done, good and faithful servant. And He takes off your rags and He puts on robes of righteousness and He puts a crown on your head and He shows you a seat. It says, We are seated in heavenly places and no one can move that seat. But the story doesn't stop there. Because then Jesus takes your hand, He leads you back out the door, and He points down the hill, and He says, go back down there and tell them that I paid it all. And that now all humanity has a way to get before the throne of God. That all humanity can come boldly before the throne of grace and cry out in our times of need and expect a Savior. And expect to be changed. And expect to see God change others. And expect to see God bend the heavens and come down. Because He made the way. Because it's not on our own merits. It's not on our own righteousness. He took care of all that. He pulls us up by the hand. He says, you're clean. You're pure. You're holy. You have all authority and power in heaven and earth. Now go back down and be Jesus to somebody else. And we find out that that Jesus that came down was Jesus clothed in human flesh. Now maybe I'm Jesus this morning telling you, come up the hill of God. He paid it all. There's nothing left in your balance. There's nothing from your old life that can get you now. There is no debt that you've occurred. There is no flaw in your character. There is nothing that Jesus cannot fix. Will you seek His face? One last time to Psalm 17. He says, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness, and I will be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. You guys, that God that we've been talking about, that Jesus who's perfect in everything and complete in his character and is the solution to all the world's problems, that Jesus intends to do such a work in you that you only look like him. Remember how we talked about crucifixion? And crucifixion is never fun. It's never fun to be made fun of for standing up for what you believe is right. It's never fun to go to the stake, which we won't do in this country yet. But it's never fun to be persecuted or ostracized or made fun of for seeing the beauty of Christ and deciding to give Him your life and living under that revelation. It's never fun. And if you think external pressures are the hardest thing to overcome, you haven't tried yet. The hardest pressures are always in here. What I want for my life, what I want and what I intend to get, that's the hardest part. But get this, when we climb up on that cross, and like Jesus at the garden when we wrestle that last time, one last time we say, anything to avoid this, but if this is what you want, I'll give it to you. And we climb up on that cross and we die. Then with David we say, when I awake, I'm going to look like Jesus. We don't kill things in our heart to make ourselves better people. 
We don't kill things in our heart because we're morally better than everyone else. We don't kill things in our heart because it's the right thing to do or because it's the best way to your quick and happy life now. We kill things in our heart because he said if we killed that thing in our heart, he would manifest himself to us. And above everything, we want to see Jesus. In our own heart, we want to see Jesus. And that's why we climb on the cross. And that's why we voluntarily choose to die. That's why we choose not to go there, not to say that, not to be like that, not to obtain for ourselves righteousness. He already did that. We do it because we want to see Jesus. And we haven't seen him yet like he can be seen. I don't care if you with Paul have been up to the third heavens. He still hadn't seen Jesus like he knew he could see Jesus. And so he says, if this lie is what's stopping me from seeing you, I'm going to put that lie down because I want to see Jesus. If just standing up and declaring your name to somebody who's never met you is a way that my flesh dies, I want to do that because I want to see Jesus. I want to do it because I believe in all these small actions. I'm dying every day. And as I die, Jesus grows. And as Jesus grows, my flesh shrinks and my heart expands. And as my heart expands, it becomes more and more joyful to put ourselves to death. Guys, it was for this joy that for thousands of years, martyrs have smiled as they've been led off to be burned at the stake, to literally be set on fire while still alive. And yet they were able to do it because they said, I know when I awake, I'm going to look like Jesus. Guys, for this reason, people who live in families, who have loved ones, sons and daughters, they've stood on the border of lands that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, and they have cheerfully waved goodbye to everything that they know and never be seen again for one reason. They want to see Jesus. They want to see Jesus. And if Jesus tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, that's where he's going to see Jesus. Because everywhere else Jonah goes, it's from the presence of God. It's from the word of the Lord. And it's for this hope. 1 John 3, 3. Every man who has this hope in himself purifies himself, even as he is pure, because we don't know what he looks like, but we know that when we see him, when we awake, we will look like him. And guys, when we begin to see Jesus as beautiful, it's the only time that we will begin to cheerfully crucify our own flesh. See, we have to, we have to see who we are and who he is to understand that the degradation and the filth and the death that we live with is not beautiful. It's not beautiful to cheat on people and to lie and to steal and to hurt and connive and destroy life. That's not beautiful. Beautiful is to save a life, to lay your life down, to have power and authority to cast out, to have power to heal. That's beautiful. That's more beautiful than anything you could watch or do or say or experience. That's beautiful. But it takes us seeing Jesus to know that. We make the dumbest things the most beautiful things in our life. We make a green piece of paper the most beautiful thing in our life. We make our relationships, which are passed away, and friends that will forget us in a few years, we make that the most important thing of our life. And our life is determined by getting those things that we want so badly. And when they leave us, when we're left with nothing, we realize that this whole time we've been chasing death. And now death is all we have. And there's nothing to it. When will we seek His face? When will we order our lives in such a way that we will see Jesus' face so when, when we're called on to stand up for his name and to show somebody else who Jesus is beautiful, we won't have a moment's hesitation because it's not about what I know. It's not about who I am. It's not about some power level or some having something that somebody else doesn't have. It's just about showing them who Jesus is. And if you're acting like Jesus in your private life, that life, well, Jesus will come out in your public life. 
And that's all ministry is. Ministry is just the overflow of Jesus. It's a part of Jesus you can no longer contain that comes out and that other people get to see. That is ministry. But it all starts and it all begins and it all flows from and it all stops all based on what we see or don't see of Jesus. The greatest miracle in all the world is not the dead coming back to life. The greatest miracle in all the world is that us and our degradation, our filth and the evil thoughts we think about people that we don't like and all the grudges and all the gross stuff that we've been involved with over the years. The most amazing thing in all the world, the biggest miracle is that somehow Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can take us from that. And that when we wake up, we look like Him. Because we aren't anything like Him. We don't possess His power to save. We don't possess His ability to resist temptation. We don't have His ability to resist the devil. We have nothing. And yet God comes into a life that will just receive His work on their behalf and He changes them all together. And He makes them all together beautiful. And so he can say that my bride is altogether beautiful and in her is no flaw. That's us, he speaks of. Because he looks and he sees us. He sees himself in us. Church, when we see God, may we be satisfied in our similarity to God. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for manifesting yourself here this morning, Father. And, and don't, don't leave us be, Father. If there's anybody that experienced your presence and experienced your call, Jesus, let that call not leave their heart, God. May it not leave their head or their mind, God. May it not leave them until they set their face to seek you, Father, and nothing else. Not you for your benefits, God. Not you <clears throat> for anything except for who you are, Father and the internal manifestation of your Son, Jesus Christ, that, that person who even now is here to accept us if we will but turn, to forgive us if we will but repent, to make us right if we will but admit that we are wrong, to become our chief joy and our greatest treasure if we will but admit that all the treasures and all the joys that we've had up to this point have all been lies and have all been death. If we will but admit the supremacy of Christ and give our lives over to him and trust that he will make us beautiful. He will receive us, Father. And I ask for that for every person here, Father. No matter what stage of their Christian life and whether they're regenerate or not, Father, that we all press in to know you better, Father. Be with us, Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.